This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. Where you become traumatized is when you create meaning based on that traumatic event. I am not going to get promoted. There's no, I should just quit this field. I am, my boss has it out for me. What, what I know is that you are more likely to draw those conclusions if you have unresolved trauma from childhood. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Grief is My Side Hustle with Megan Reardon Jarvis. Megan is a licensed clinical social worker and trauma-informed psychotherapist specializing in grief and loss. With over 20 years in the field, Megan worked in emergency rooms, homeless shelters, schools, and clinics before opening her own practice in 2004. As a writer, podcast host, and sought-after consultant with over 20 years of clinical experience, she helps individuals and groups explore the impact of emotion on personal and professional relationships. Using a wide variety of trauma modalities, Megan helps clients identify and integrate both unexpected loss and desired change. On her popular platform, Grief is My Side Hustle, Megan hosts the grief writing workshop, Grief Mates, and releases weekly podcasts and blog posts. Her essays have been widely published, and her memoir, End of the Hour, comes out in 2024. Megan lives in Maryland with her husband and three kids. Megan, welcome to the show. Wow, Dan, thank you so much for having me. It is just an honor to be here. We have lots to talk about. Yay. Um, I really want to... Your op-ed piece in the Chicago Tribune yeah. was really powerful. Um, I have a, we have a lot to talk about. And before, though, let, tell us a little bit about what, what led you to, first of all, mm. becoming a psychotherapist, then a trauma-informed psychotherapist, and then a grief expert. Yeah. How, how in the world did I get here? How'd that happen? Um, yeah. So, well, th thanks for that question. And I'll, I will, I'll give you the little arc as best I understand it because my intention when I was in school and in my first master's degree was to become a teacher. 
So this is like, you know, some, somewhere the left-hand turn came in and I was not somebody who grew up with the, like even really knowing anything other than a stereotype of what a therapist was. So I, um, I grew up in, in Massachusetts on a farm with, uh, five brothers and sisters. And one of the seminal events of my childhood was that someone who we considered like a cousin, you know, a mm -hmm. family cousin drown one day, a 16 year old whose name was Chris. And it was, you know, one of those life before and after moments. And I, my family, because it was the mid eighties, it was the early eighties, it's 1983. They did what they thought was the right thing, which is you don't talk to kids about hard stuff. Right. And what I came to sort of understand first in my, in my master's program for teaching, which is, which was, um, child development was that's not the right way to go with hard stuff is not to like leave an eight year old in the silence of their own mind around something really terrifying. Like I think kids can understand to, to an eight year old, like a 40 year old seems pretty old. A 16-year-old does not. And so it was pretty terrifying to have someone um, like in my cohort, in my childhood cohort, disappear. And I didn't understand how that impacted me until, you know, I would notice things like just regular challenges in my friendship with people, I would notice that I was, uh, I took things more seriously right. or things hurt my feelings. You know, some of the things that I then come to understand, those are trauma responses. Right. So when I look at what my parents were doing, because they were much younger than I am now, when they had to adjust to how do you hold space for your six children who've just lost a childhood friend, I have a lot of understanding about it, but when what brought me to my own therapy experience was a pretty miserable breakup mm. and I got into the first therapy session and the therapist was like, tell me about what's going on. And I talked in one long run on sentence about, you know, my heartbreak Yeah. at the end of this, at the end of the session, the therapist said, well, you know, we're going to talk about your family. And I was like, we don't need to talk about my family. It's all They're great. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. They're per yeah. And what I came to then understand in the next 10 years was just how much this traumatic event in my childhood had really significantly impacted me. Mm -hmm. And therapy offered me all of this trial and error process to sort of not have to be so reactive, not have to be so anxious, not have to be so worried, mm -hmm. and to change how I was as a friend and a family member in relationships. And it was so exciting. Um, where I, where I understood that actually I needed to become trauma trained mm -hmm. was when I actually, I activated some trauma in a client by doing it wrong. Huh. So I was working with a client who came in and had had a terrible event and I did what you're not supposed to do, which is, I was like, well, tell me about your terrible event. And for people who don't know, that's not how we approach trauma. We don't want to take them back into the visceral memories so that they're re-experiencing trauma. But to be fair, since um, we've trained, I believe, probably at fairly similar times, the thinking at the time was not 
it is as it is now, correct? I mean, we That's were right. taught basically, let's reprocess the trauma in a healthy environment. I mean, so we have new information now and you yes. obviously learned in real time why that yeah. old way is not helpful. That's right. You're absolutely right. So therapy, like everything else, you know, it's continually evolving. It's, it, we mm -hmm. know more. And it was, hey, all you have to do is talk about it, shed light on it, that will shame bust it, and you will be better. And what we now really have a much better understanding is that trauma is an event that happens or a series of events that happen. So it can be an earthquake or it can be, you know, child sexual abuse. Like it, it it's something that happens to you, but you trap the meaning inside your body. Yeah. And so the way people can become re-traumatized and talk to anybody with trauma is they'll say, you know, they smelled something, they heard something, they saw something, and all of a sudden they time travel back to the moment when the terrible event happened. Mm -hmm. And you're totally right that we, we have learned more about that. And I experienced in real time, you know, doing what I had been taught and having a client have a tremendously terrible reaction, you know, that was scary to me and scary to her. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this work and, and, and I have to do this work. So I need to know more. And then I just, you know, there are trainings, you know, yeah. there are trainings that are like a weekend training where you, you know, you get your continuing education units, but really it's like watching a cartoon. And then there are trainings, which are the ones that I've taken, which take a year. They cost a lot of money. Yeah. And you are going down into the tunnel of that, you know, therapeutic experience yeah. yourself so that you can lead your clients there. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the the short, long answer to how did how did I get to trauma therapy? It was probably, it's probably always been me trying to heal my own childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the, you know, that's probably the the real genuine answer because I can just never get enough of learning about things. And I had an event where I just thought if I'm going to be a helper, I have to be better skilled than I am right now. And then fast forward mm -hmm. because um, I know this because you're so open with your story um, and your memoir, which is coming out, right? All of your stories. Someday, yeah. Um, and then fast forward, you then have to deal with among the greatest losses um, yeah. of each of your parents in succession with the different ways of losing your parents. And yeah. then as you find out, for all of us, everyone, like whether we're psychologists, therapists, parent experts, grief experts, when we're actually experiencing the thing that we are trying to help others with, we're just like everyone else. Yeah. We're like knowing all the things. Powerless. That's right. And vulnerable. You know, I it's humbling because I I don't think I really fully understood that there was this little part of me that was hoping that by doing the really intense studying that I've done, that I would circumnavigate the experiences. I really, I really didn't understand until I was just stunned um, to discover that here I am, I'm, I could be my own client in this moment that I, I had hoped that becoming a trauma therapist meant I wouldn't have to have any trauma, but right. that's, right. you know, and it was a very, um, and I am, thank you for saying that I am really open about it because I, I really do believe that part of the problem with the way that the culture of grief and loss is right now is that people do not think that it's a normal 
process and that we don't talk about it well. Um, but also it's a little bit like, you know, I'm, I'm walking the walk that, that my dad's death, which was from, from small cell cancer in 2017, he was diagnosed in 2016. He lived almost exactly a year from diagnosis to death, which is what doctors had predicted. And I got to participate in him dying. So we did all the stuff. Mm -hmm. It was still very painful and very sad, Mm -hmm. but we did all the things Mm -hmm. which sort of allow you to not be traumatized Mm -hmm. by something happening. And I wasn't, my dad and I were not close. I mean, if he were still alive, he would say that as well. And, um, it was a, just a real gift to have that time with him because I just yielded to the idea that, I didn't need him to be other than who he was. I just wanted to sit with him in love. Mm -hmm. And I was so lucky to get to do that. And with my mom, she had a short illness and died in her sleep while I was on vacation with her. And I've spent, you know, a million zillion hours peeling back Mm -hmm. what ultimately happened, which was I developed PTSD really quickly. And what I don't always talk about is because it's more my mother's story to tell But when my cousin died, my mother developed PTSD. Mm. She was there when they took him out of the water. And she spent about a year in the symptoms of reliving, you know, being traumatized, the the tape beginning and not being able to stop it. And she and I had conversations about that when, when I was an adult. And then when I came to learn things like EMDR and really concrete trauma treatment, you know, we had some emotional conversations about, Mm -hmm. you know, there have been, you know, EMDR didn't exist when this happened. So she couldn't have gotten EMDR. But when I had, you know, my mom died, I was in a parking lot when I got this piece of information. I had a car full of children. I also knew she died because I felt it inside my body. Um, But I, I had this moment where I was like, well, I can pick to be the mother to these children who need someone to drive them an hour back to where we belong or I can be the child of this woman who just died. Mm-hmm. And I, in this way that when I went ultimately to inpatient treatment, they described as a, as a codependent relapse. Hmm. I picked the kids and not me. And it was such a fascinating That's diagnosis, yeah. isn't it? Right. Yeah. So it was such a fascinating diagnosis because I was like, no, no, no. I, I know that I was codependent when my mom had PTSD. I was trying to like help her, even though I was only eight, I was trying to cover for what was going on in the family. But I broke out of that codependency mm-hmm. when I was 26 and I went to therapy. And, you know, I think it won't surprise you to discover that we are healing wounds lifelong. Right. So I fell like into this, I'm going to do all the things and help all the people and, you know, write the eulogy and it, like, and when all of that was gone, when there was nothing to do. I was in a complete state of confusion and panic about how do I, who am I anymore? And that was really surprising to me because I don't think I understood how much the dynamic of my mother's existence was still something that I tethered myself to in a way that maybe wasn't dysfunctionally codependent, right? but was still codependent. Well, and to normalize your response here for a second... Um, 
kicking into, okay, I got to take care of my kids. I got a plan. I mean, that is, you know, we got to, yeah. we got to prop up our coping skills too, guys, right? Like, <laughs> like that is coping <laughs> and surviving a traumatic situation. The challenge is it always catches up with us, right? As yeah. we, as, as the famous saying, the body keeps the score, like it will always catch up with us. But I think you were, you were just stepping into your strengths. You're stepping into your coping skills. Like you obviously are a doer. You get things done. You're a mama bear, right? You're a family person and you did what you need to do. But as you point out, then there's stuff to reckon with. That's right. That's right. And I, and, and that is true. And I think, you know, one of the things when I, because I specialize in grief and loss, there are times it, it almost every client will come in because it takes a minute to find me. And I mostly deal with the kind of grief that I had, which is traumatic grief. And which, you know, which just means sort of average, not average and doesn't resolve on its own for your listeners. It means like you need help and intervention to break through some of the symptoms. And, um, you know, I think, I think that for most people, it is a relief to have things to do, whether you're grieving or you're trying to support a griever. It's having, you know, doctors to call and funeral homes to, it's terrible and horrible, but it keeps you upright. Mm -hmm. I think the difference for me was that like, even in that moment, I had my three kids in the car and I had my best friend's kid in the car. And she called me when she found out that my mom had died. I was still in the parking lot. And she said, stay there. I'll come get you. And I could feel it. I was like, I don't want to be helped. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go down that slide. Right. Yeah. That's going to be more painful. Right. I want to help the other people. And I don't know what it would have been like. You know, one of the treatments I had in, ther- in, in therapy and inpatient was this amazing IFS session. And Mm. for your listeners, you know, IFS is activating parts of you that come to sort of rescue you, which we call firefighters and managers that are always trying to protect you. But I had this, and we, and we use our memory and our imagination at the same time. So it's really like shaman magic. And my IFS session was, we went to a core memory. What is the most painful part of your mom dying? And that moment in the parking lot was the most painful because the very first thing I thought when I heard she died, the very first thought in my head was, it's your fault, meaning me. It's your fault, Megan, that she died. And I still had the metacognition as a clinician, like, oh, isn't that interesting? I'm having one of those, you know, ruminations that my clients had. I just didn't understand it was going to like wrestle me to the ground and win. Mm -hmm. Um, But in that, in that moment, my therapist said, what would have been helpful for you in that moment? Mm -hmm. How could we show up for you in that moment? And my imagination was like, oh, my older brother, who is very much a father figure for me. He drives up with his wife, his wife takes the kids, she drives them. And my older brother drives and I am the passenger. Mm -hmm. So my system really did understand that I needed to be supported and helped in that moment. And to say that I couldn't be isn't really true right? because my brother had also called and said, just put a pin in a mat, yeah. stay right there. And I will, I will help you. 
The other thing that happened is in my childhood, when my cousin died, my mother, who was deeply religious, asked us to get come together and say the rosary, which I didn't know how to do as an eight-year-old. And, and when my cousin stayed dead after we you know, said the rosary, I was sort of like afraid that maybe that was why, because I didn't know the rosary. Of course, I didn't mm-hmm. mention that to anyone until I was 26 years old. But that was what I carried. I had the same compulsion when I learned that my mother died. I know, and I know this is true, that she would have wanted someone to say the rosary over her body. So I also had this other part of me that was like, again, kind of codependent. I wanted her to get the thing that she needed in that moment. And I don't, I mean, I don't regret any of it. Right. I just can see multiple there, you know, it, there's a lot of sliding door possibilities. And oh, what right. I know is the perfect storm of events unfolded so that my mind really, my mind and body did get pretty sick pretty fast. Well, I appreciate you sharing that for all of us because mm-hmm. it is a, you know, a personal window in to the complexity of trauma. And, you know, as you're describing, there's single trauma events, but then there are single trauma events that activate prior dormant, not processed trauma. And whether we have little T's or big T's in our lives, everyone has experienced some level of trauma. And And I think in the field, the reason I really think it's so important to have these conversations is as we're building up to your op-ed piece and and how we don't talk about trauma, like there's this belief that either you have post-traumatic stress disorder or you don't. And if you don't yeah. have, post, if you're not, you know, if you don't have post-traumatic stress disorder, then you just go about your business. Like then it's not, it's not that bad. It's not anything that we need to talk about. We need to treat, you know, like if you don't have the diagnosis, then you don't need treatment, which is all so wrong and so tell every tell us how you see the continuum of trauma to post traumatic stress disorder in the natural oh, human le- you know it's human functioning it's human experience that's such a great question and i i don't want to make like a left hand turn here but there's a there's been a lot of consternation in the field right about mm-hmm. this new quote unquote new diagnosis that's now in our diagnostic code manual yes, about yes prolonged grief disorder. And I mean, it is a wild country out there if you talk about this on the internet. But I, what I'll say about it is prolonged grief disorder is the thing that I treat without it having to be prolonged. Meaning we're talking about a traumatic response to loss. So what I know is, and this was also true when I was pregnant, someone gave me a screening for potential postpartum by just asking me a series of questions. And they said, wow, you know, you're really at, you've had depression before you've had anxiety before you're really at high risk of postpartum depression. So here's, here are the things we're going to put together so that if you have it, which I only had it with one kid and it wasn't that severe, but somebody had put me on the alert to it. Mm -hmm. When you have childhood trauma, you are predisposed to any other traumatic event that might land lightly on your college roommate's shoulders, to that being really difficult for your system. Mm -hmm. 
And there are these things, you know, there's these things called ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, which are what you would expect them to be. Poverty in the home, addiction in the home, someone being incarcerated, abuse of any kind, you know, there's 10 of them. And when you have those in your childhood, it also creates a whole constellation of things that are associated with trauma, like high anxiety, hypervigilance, depression, you know, people being able to have that core level of education is like my giant soapbox. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people don't know that if you have anxiety, you will always also have depression, but you can have depression with anxiety. And you know, I walk around sort of saying to folks, well, depression is like the nuclear reactor trip switch to anxiety. It keeps you from exploding. Right, right. But when we're talking about, you know, who is the person that's going to really have a hard time with grief, with a with another traumatic event, death is just another traumatic event. Right. Even my dad's death was a trauma. Mm -hmm. It just did not traumatize me. Right. That's key right there. Just so, hold on for one second, everyone. Like, right. Yeah. So that was a, tra a traumatic event doesn't always become 100%. traumatizing. Yeah. So I was, that's all I was writing about at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone was like, we're in a collective drama. And I was like, listen, guys, we are because this is traumatic, but there are populations, right? And lo and behold, they're the people who we would have predicted childhood, adverse childhood experiences, people who live in poverty, people who are, you know, live in more disconnection. Like there, there are predictable groups and they have had a harder time. So when I'm when I'm looking at trauma in general, part of what I'm trying to explain to folks is, and this is like Bessel van der Kolk's definition yep. Yep. of trauma, right? And he's sort of the godfather in all of this, yep. is it's when your, your neurobiological state is overwhelmed. And so everybody knows this experience. Like your boss calls on you and says, do you have the presentation ready? And you don't have the presentation ready because you didn't think that was happening in this meeting. And you freeze and you can't speak and all the blood runs to your stomach and all of that. That's a traumatic event. Where you become traumatized is when you create meaning based on that traumatic event. I, I'm not going to get promoted. There's no, I should just quit this field. I am, my boss has it out for me. What, what I know is that you are more likely to draw those conclusions if you have unresolved trauma from childhood. So I remember in graduate school really being enlightened by the studies that were coming out from the VAs at the time about Vietnam vets. And they were looking at this question of if you have all these guys who experienced the same thing, these soldiers experienced the same terrible tra traumatic combat situations and they come back home and let's say there's four of them and two of them are able to live relatively adjusted lives and two develop debilitating PTSD that they do not recover from. And this was before we even knew what ACEs were. That's this right. is when they discovered it was the soldiers that had these vulnerabilities prior to going to combat, depression, anxiety, um, abuse in the family, addiction. Okay. So all of these poverty, these things that you said made 
put their systems at more vulnerability for experiencing a traumatic event and then developing a disorder because of the severity of the experience on their system. That's exactly right. And what's fascinating to me is rather than focus on that, rather than say, let's get everybody educated so that everybody knows what the ACEs are and that we know who to get treatment for as soon as possible and what those treatments are, right? Because I was a therapist for a long time before I'd even heard of IFS or EMDR. And some of that is because it's it's um, relatively new, but they are treatments, right? They're not just um, it's not just come in and tell me your problems. It's come in and let's shift the energy inside your body. And in trauma, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about too much energy inside your body that is going, you know, you're dysregulated from it. And so your system, it's like, it needs, it needs you to bail it out. And what are the tools that you're going to use to bail it out? And I think we do a lot of like (laughs) magazines and talk show hosts are like, Let's talk to the one guy who didn't get traumatized about his resiliency as if that's a transferable or learnable, you know, quotient that we can all then embrace rather than, God, what happened to those three Mm -hmm. who were not able to, and and what does that mean? Because Mm -hmm. you said it a minute ago, we all experience traumas. And how we recover from the trauma is the thing that is the most significant. You know, one of the things that I learned and have employed in my own experience with my own kids. So my father died and my mother died at the same, you know, my kids at different were at different ages, but they were all around the same age that I was when I had this child die in mm-hmm. my life. Mm-hmm. And so I was very aware that, you know, this is, this could be their event. Now it wasn't a child. It was a grandparent, an elderly grandparent. So there's Mm -hmm. that natural course and their attachment to their grandparent was different, right? Because that's part of what happens in trauma is, you know, it's certainly in grief and loss. Who did you lose? You know, if they're a seminal Mm -hmm. part of your life, right. That impacts how you feel about it. But I really feel like in, you know, in the trauma field, the more we are able to explain to folks what trauma really means is the meaning that your system is making from this experience and and therefore may continue to make for the rest of its life. And it's not we have to avoid all traumas. It's that we got to rush to the place and make sure that we provide enough support. We're in this pandemic right now, and I am stunned. I mean, this might wrap the transition. Up. You just trans- yeah, you're transitioning right? into, us yes, into yes. my into my yeah. rage against the machine railing yes. um, op-ed. But I'm really stunned that we do not have the foresight, even with all of the education, to be coalescing our efforts. You know, I I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much clinical work really is reasonable to expect me to continue to do considering mm-hmm. the heavy load. Yeah. But if I don't do my work, that's 20 people who are right. going to have to go get on a waiting list with a therapist who, you know, right. already has a waiting list. Yeah. I'm stunned that we don't have federal programs that are 
beginning to, you know, for people who are in school right now, look, if you specialize in grief and loss and trauma, we're going to cut your loans in half or just make those, the make pay Bessel van der Kolk to come out with a, you know, a free downloadable program that people can get certified in so that we have folks who are much, who are ready, who, because not, not everybody who is a therapist that you walk into their office knows what just the simple stuff that we just talked about, which is listen, trauma is in the body. It's five senses. This is what we you know, this is what we're making of it. And the op-ed that I wrote, um, called, why aren't we talking about the role of grief and loss in the great resignation? Right. Yeah. Like it's not there. It's not there. It's, it's, it's not, just, I mean, no, oh, no, it's not. It, well, so let me say this in, yeah. in defense of some companies, I do work with companies. They, mm-hmm. they are calling me and saying, we are aware that we need to be adding a, a level of conversation and we don't know how to have it. And I appreciate that because I think what mostly you're seeing, you know, if you, if you Google the great reg- resignation or if you follow, you know, the New York times has a whole, has actually a writer, she's doing a gorgeous job who's writing every week about what companies are doing in order to sort of like get back to work, you know, and one company, I'm not going to name them here, but like their big plan is to have a concert and have Lizzo play. You know, that's going to get us back to work. Mm-hmm. Like that might get you in the door, but that's not going to make work feel safe. And so the op-ed that I wrote that really was, you know, I, it's written this way because this is really what happened. I was coming back from a grief and loss retreat that it was the first one I had run in a long time mm-hmm. um, up at Kripalo in Western Mass. And it was just a small little private group. And these folks were talking about, you know, irrevocable loss, just, you know, I had one client that had lost multiple relatives in, um, during the pandemic and it was really heartbreaking. And I was like able to stay regulated with the pain mm-hmm. and I get in my car and it's a five hour drive back to DC and I love driving. I have three kids. So I love being in the car by myself and I pop in my, one of my favorite podcasts and the podcast description is these two, this father-son duo social scientist team is going to tell us why the great resignation is happening. And I'm like, awesome. We are going to just be doing my yes. jam right now. It's yes. going to be a grief and loss podcast. And so these two lovely men come on and the host who is like a, you know, a hero of mine, she's like, all right, give us the data. Tell us, tell us what you know. And so I'm, I, I did spend some time as a social scientist, like data collector. So I also have a reasonable amount of skepticism about data because I know how it can be manipulated. I'm not accusing these men of doing anything, but their model was they were going to explain why, you know, 4.6 million people were not returning to the workforce since November. They were going to explain that by looking at Glassdoor. And for people who don't know what Glassdoor is, Glassdoor is where you go and you say crappy things about your company and explain why they're not good so yeah. that when other people are maybe going to be hired by that company, they can say like, oh, well, it turns out this is a super racist company. Nine employees have said that. So they went on Glassdoor and they did an evaluation of the people who had left reviews from no, you know, from when the great resignation, which is this term that is, you know, from a, from a professor in, in Texas 
who just said, like, listen, this is an epidemic. People are not going back to work. So their findings, again, based on qualitative research, so people saying, this is why I'm leaving my job, their findings are five primary findings, the most significant of which is people are saying they're leaving their jobs because their jobs are toxic work environments. And toxic is defined as racist, you know, all the things yeah. that you would expect. Right. My right. boss doesn't respect me. They are, you know, they're not, um, they're not, um, following moral codes, like the things that you would expect a toxic work environment. And not one time in the hour and nine minutes, does anyone say COVID, death, dying, or grief? Yeah. Yeah. And I pulled my car over on the side of the road and cried for like 25 minutes. And then I went into the McDonald's at the, at the um, roadside stop and Googled great resignation. And I read articles from Time, CNN, NPR, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune. Not one article said anything about death and dying. Now, interestingly, the guy who came, who came up with the phrase great resignation, he did. Yeah. He said, well, and people are dying everywhere. So that's why people aren't going to go back to work. But separate from him... And all I kept thinking to myself was yeah. like, people pause and be logical. A million people have died. We that the number that comes from various places, but is but it, the CDC agrees that means nine million people just in this country are grieving. And you think that people don't want to go back to work because suddenly, while no one has been in the office, it's become even more racist than before, or more toxic than before. Like that doesn't even make any sense. And so I just sat there like, we are never, ever going to be able to change this culture on grief and loss if we can't even acknowledge and name what right. is happening to us right so now. So is this, is this cultural denial, cultural repression? Is it our coping? I mean, not saying it's healthy coping. Like, how do you make sense of this from a psychological, sociological perspective? I mean, I don't want to say what I think it is because it's like terrible, but I, say you know, <laughs> I, I think it is willful ignorance. I think, mm -hmm. I think death and loss and COVID have made us feel really, really helpless. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing we do the least well is helpless. And yeah. so I think people don't want to talk about feeling helpless. And I think we have a culture that really believes that there is some sort of like um, that that grief and loss is a little bit like your sex life, like you're supposed to keep it private. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of between you and maybe one other person, like maybe your therapist in your 50 minute lunch hour. And that if we talk about it out loud, it's going to like kind of screw things up for people. Mm hmm. And I, so that's what I think. I think it feels like a mess. I think people feel really ill-equipped. I think unlike anything else in the world, like if you said to, if you said to me, I am really having trouble with my, with like managing my money, I would be like, wow, you should really talk to a money guy. There are a lot out there. You should Google one. I wouldn't be like, let me tell you what I do with my money, even though I'm a, I'm a trauma specialist. <laughs> I would be like, you should talk to an expert about your money, Dan. 
What is fascinating about grief and loss is that that is not what people do. I mean, mm -hmm. I had a, a law firm the other day call me to tell me that they wanted me to come in. I didn't take the work because they had been insane. They had behaved insanely based on losing a partner. They didn't alert people of his funeral. They didn't provide any transportation to the funeral. They didn't make the support staff who probably worked with him every day feel like they were welcome at the funeral. And they were like, we want, we would like you to come in and have our employees not be upset about that. And I was like, that's sister. That's, that's not, what, not I what I do. do. That's not what I do. That's no. not what I do. No. I no. will come in and talk to your executive team about how you can never, ever make that mistake again. And the way mm -hmm. that I will talk to you about that is I will just teach you about what you could have done differently. And it's so simple that you will feel empowered to, but you know, I have trauma therapists say to me, cause I put up probably every three months, I put up a series of questions when there's a profound loss. Do not say lots of things. Just ask questions to grievers. Ask these five questions. And one of them is, are you sleeping? Mm -hmm. You know, who's been helping you? Mm -hmm. What has been surprisingly helpful? What has been surprisingly unhelpful? They're really simple questions. But what, what is true in grief and loss is people just need to talk it out. Because Mary Frances O'Connor, who I had on my podcast. Oh, I just is, listened to it. It was awesome. I was going to tell she you. She is awesome. It I mean, was an awesome, awesome podcast. Yeah. So she wrote this book called The Grieving Brain. And basically what she says, which is like, God, duh, why didn't we think about this? Is that when someone that you love, that is the center of your world, dies, you have to relearn everything in your life. Everything about your, and that's why when you wake up in the morning, every morning, you forget for a second. And then it's like, oh, so painful again. But basically the brain is just a predictive organ that is, is going to tell you what today is going to be like and like what your coffee is going to taste like based on its past experience right. with it. Right. But it's never done this before. It's never lit. You know, I, I had not in all of my 45 years when my mother died, lived one single day without her before. And I will tell you, even still now, I cannot believe that I have lived two and a half years without her on the planet. I, I, and the other day, I said to my husband, you know who would know that? My mom. I'll call her when we get home. And he sort of, and I was like, oh, God. Yeah. And I just did that whole cycle of, you know, having well, to I, relearn yeah. in that moment. And I think, Doctor, in what I recall from that podcast, um, which I listened to yesterday, so I should recall this, <laughs> the idea of a map, our brain yeah. has a map, right? And so That's the map right. has all the people and places and things that we expect to be there and have been there for decades. And we don't just get a new map. We, right. we have this hardwired map. And every yeah. day that we live with this new experience of loss, we're trying to make sense of something that doesn't fit on, in our map. That's right. And what she and I talked about, which is that the, I, I sort of stumbled on in this analogy early is that like when I had my daughter and for me, it was when she like was born, not when I found out that I was pregnant. I had lots of miscarriages before I had her. Not lots. I had, I had one significant one, but, but in, in the course of having my children, I have had many miscarriages. So for me, when the baby is in my arms, 
When my daughter Lucy was born, I became a parent. And I will never, ever not be a parent for one minute of the rest of my life. And that is the same when you are a griever. It is the exact same. I will never, ever, ever not fully and completely understand the existential sorrow of profound Mm -hmm. loss ever. Right. The same way that I will never not know the existential terror of being a parent. And the difference is people love babies. When you become a parent, you get something and it's cute and people come forward with gifts and presents and they want to talk to you and they never suggest that you are talking too much about being a parent and they never suggest that it is too hard or that it gets easier and that is the opposite with grief and loss right, is that right. people people often are like so do you feel like you're back to normal like right. what in the world are you talking about well what and would i that think mean that yeah. I was back to normal? and i feel it's it's everyone's own it's everyone's own uncomfortableness with it i remember when a close friend lost her mom and i remember not knowing what to say. I mean, I didn't know what to say, how to do it. Um, This was probably in the 20s, maybe, Um, or even a later, maybe early 30s. Like I just didn't even know what to say. And I remember we were at the office. She's also um, a psychologist. And we were at the office, and she said our other colleague, who's our similar age, she said came up to her and said, that really sucks. Yeah. I'm so sorry. And this colleague had lost a parent. Yeah. This colleague knew what to say. And what she told me is, that's all I need to hear from people. Just the acknowledgement and the validation that this sucks. And I, I, I get it. I'm here. So I think there's such profound value in what you are describing, which is you can feel the difference. When someone understands where you've been, whether it's you're a new parent and you're exhausted or whether it's you've just lost your dad, you can feel it. What is really difficult is that the thing, the primary thing that grievers talk about is feeling, first of all, like the earth doesn't tilt on its axis. So it's really insulting that everyone else is like going to work and buying groceries. So there's, they feel like they're nuts in the world, that the world is no longer theirs to put their feet on normally. And they feel really isolated and different than everyone else. And that cannot actually be remedied. Mary Frances would tell you, eventually you sort of heal. Mm-hmm. Your brain comes to understand. Mm-hmm. But in that interim, that time period, however long it takes. And for me, I would tell you, it's been about two years where I'm like, oh, look at that. I feel like myself. And I remember this. I feel like myself in this body. In So let's take my two-year period. I have interacted with a lot of people who have said a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And it is really obvious when people feel awkward and uncomfortable. I feel awkward and uncomfortable, and I'm a grief expert. Mm-hmm. But Part of the reason when we feel awkward and uncomfortable is that we do not have a core level of education about it. Right. That my children have had more education at age 10 about what it is like to have a, what we used to call gender dysmorphia, but really what we're talking about is that there's a spectrum across gender. 
they have more education about that. And that population is pretty small, whereas a hundred percent of us are going to grieve. And we don't have a grief class in college. Mary Frances O'Connor teaches one, which I would die to take, but <laughs> I was not even required to take a grief and loss class, not even a death and dying class in order to become a therapist. Same. Yeah. And that's yeah. nuts. I mean, it that is. is nuts. And I, I don't know, you know, there's a, there's a palliative care specialist named Catherine, Dr. Catherine Mannix in the UK, who's extraordinary. And, you know, she, she's on the other end where she holds the hands of people who are dying and the, and works with the families. But what she argues in her book, which is beautiful, um, she talks about people used to die in the home. People used to give birth in the home. Mm -hmm. People used to walk to, you know, the Irish wake, which like I was shocked to discover really meant the body was in the bar. But we used to have a lot more exposure. And so this notion of people being uncomfortable with it was just different. And so when we, you know, we did, we used to have mourning clothes. God, I wished there were mourning clothes when my mm -hmm. mom died. I was standing in the grocery store babbling about grapes to this mm -hmm. man who I don't know what I was, but I think he thought I was like totally mentally ill. And I feel like if I had been wearing a black shawl, mm. he would have been like, Oh, you are, yeah. you're in a state of suffering. How right. let me, let me pay for your grapes. Yeah. But instead I came home and said to my husband, like someone might do a wellness check on me because I was having mm. a very bizarre conversation about what? grapes earlier because my mind is ill. In terms of the education you're talking about, you know, yeah. as we are, as we are unfortunately winding down here, what can yeah. we leave? What do you want to impart to our community about how to help kids manage trauma, handle trauma, prepare for trauma, grief and loss? Like what, what's the message to parents? Yeah. So, you know, the one thing to really remember is that parenting books are good things to have because they will remind you what stage of development your kid is in and how much they can understand about what's going on when it's going on. So that's kind of important to sort of like meeting your child with the, um, the intellectual curiosity that's sort of appropriate for their age group. So like knowing some of that stuff is helpful and you don't have to have it at the top of your head, but having a, a reference but I would say to you, asking your kids and, and kids don't like to sit across from you the way that, right. you know, you're being right. interrogated by your boss. So I mean, throw a football with them, take a walk. Teenagers are famous for telling you everything when they're in the passenger seat of the car next to you. But, but saying, you know, the phrase we use in my, in my family, which is just a shortcut, which I think my husband invented is, are there any feelings I should know about? How are your feelings today? And sometimes the answer is like, you know, they're pretty crappy, but I don't want to talk about them right now. Like any, any feelings that I need to know about. And, and that, you know, my kids walk through the door. I'm like, how are your feelings? Were they like sort of a neutral five or did you hit any sevens today? And being able to just sort of like have a conversation about feelings is mm -hmm. probably the precursor to when we get to the really hard ones you know, like all three of my kids have asked me questions like, do you think Nana is in heaven? And I'm like, hey, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know. Like mm -hmm. my youngest was six when she died. Like, I don't, 
that's a hard question. Do I think she's an angel? You know what? I don't know. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. And that I didn't have any of that when my cousin died, when my cousin died, you know, I didn't have any understanding that it's hard for everybody, that it's confusing for everybody. And what we know developmentally with kids is if they have hard feelings and can't take them out of their inside, you know, the energy, take it out and hand it to someone else, Mm -hmm. it becomes who they are, how they feel becomes who they are. Right. And so, and what you're saying, which is very important, is we don't have to have the answers. No, we don't we, have the answers. We don't have it. And pretending we do actually makes kids feel often more confused. It's like we need to be human. We need to be yeah. there. We need to ask the questions. We need to not force um, our agenda, um, them talking about their feelings if they can't articulate it or don't want to. But we really don't want to do what was done in a lot of generations. I had my own experience and mom, I don't blame you for this of, um, this always comes up of, um, not, I was seven when my grandfather, who I was close to passed away. And the decision was made for, to not have the younger grandkids at the funeral. And in hindsight, it would have been really helpful for my life to have experienced that as painful as it would have been and confusing for all the obvious reasons, but it just wasn't done in, our culture that much. So all this is to say is keep showing up and not lean in as I believe what you're saying, as opposed to the opposite, which is we feel like we need to protect our kids from this bad stuff when we actually have to go right through it and sit with it. Yeah. It's the same as what I say with my therapy clients. Like I don't work very well with people who want me to be an expert, even though I am an expert. What I, what I really am offering people when they are feeling helpless, which is generally when people are, have found my office door, they've usually tried a lot of other things and they're, they're, they're doubtful, but hopeful maybe at the same time. And what I provide is I believe that they can handle it. I believe they can do it. I believe it because we're wired to heal. I believe it because grief and loss is something that is an absolute universal across the human experience. I just think it's a lot harder than anyone ever lets on. Yeah. And so I'm not going to tell them what to do. I'm yeah. just going to help them grow the faith that they can figure out what to do. And a lot of what I do on all of my podcasts and my platforms, you know, I'll share with you what I found personally helpful or what other clients found personally helpful. For a lot of folks, I have like a menu, a literal menu in my office of these Mm -hmm. are things that people have told me that they do while they're grieving that they find helpful. But that's what we're doing with kids is we're encouraging them to be able to handle hard things. Yes. And I think the hopeful message here that we conclude on is we are wired to heal. Wired to heal. And it's like we human beings have experienced loss for millennia and un- unthinkable loss and we keep it's part of life and we keep moving on and some losses much harder than others more traumatizing than others and we need to keep talking about this as you're doing on your platforms uh to let people know like this is part of life and an important part of life and we need to be talking about it mm-hmm. all right megan parent footprint moment question are you ready, I'm ready. Okay. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, 
and or those you love? I loved this question. I love this question, Dan. So what immediately popped into my mind, so every one of my children has had a, um, a some sort of medical, scary medical thing happen that mm-hmm. all resolved okay. But I had one particular, so I worked in an emergency room and have more knowledge than the average bear about um, how, you know, medical file, you know, numbers and what blood should and shouldn't look like. And when a doctor is running what tests, what he's looking for. And I had one kid who was sick and he wasn't, he was my third kid, my, my last, my littlest. And, um, we got a phone call from the doctor after a blood panel had been run and they, that doc, that tech read me out some numbers. And I understood that that meant my son had leukemia. I understood that that was what was being told to me, even though the tech didn't under, didn't know. Now, my son does not have leukemia, so I can skip to that part. But as I was driving, so they said, we need you to get your husband, we need you to get your son, and you need to come to the office immediately. So it, this was a like a terrifying event. And I was driving through Georgetown to get to in D.C. where I live, and it was like 10 o'clock in, a mor- in the morning, and I watched a, um, a bartender or a bar owner opening the door to a bar. And I had this thought I could just pull over and I could just walk into the bar and I don't have to do any of this. I could just drink a ton of alcohol. And it was a real option. Like I felt this as like, there was a real part of me that was like, please do that. Numb. Yeah. Numb. Quit. Leave. Get out. And I had, there's, there's alcoholism in my family. And I had never really felt anything other than frustration and anger about it. And in this moment, I was like, we're, everybody is the same. We're all the same. And my husband called me and I was like, this is what they're going to tell us. And he said, why don't you go to your friend and be with your friend? And you don't have to be in this moment. This is while I'm like driving and Mm -hmm. see the bar. And I was like, cause that's, I can't do that. I can't skip the hard moments of being a parent. And I didn't know that about myself right until then that that actually didn't feel like an, I didn't know until I was deeply, profoundly terrified that I felt myself on this, like, oh, this is the before moment. This is the last moment. And our world is about to crack open. Mm-hmm. Now skip to the end. The tech had read us someone else's files. Like it oh, was, you know, it was gosh. one of those horrifying, yeah. but amazing someone else's yeah. child had leukemia. So I'm very yeah. careful yeah. to, um, you know, I, that was a, an, but what it taught, what it taught me about myself is I actually want the pain versus the numbing mm. that even though it it's awful, mm-hmm. the that's, that actually is the life that I, that I want, that I didn't want to opt out, that I wasn't doing that to be a better person. Yeah. I was doing that because that's, 
that's the honor of being so attached to other people is that you want to be in that moment, even though it's horrifying. That is powerful. That's, mm. that's a powerful moment. I mean, talk about sliding doors, yeah. right? And talk about sliding doors, even with that universal, whatever that was, that you got the wrong information, yeah. right? That still could have led you right into that bar. <laughs> it really could have. Well, and it also, it just gave me a deep and profound understanding of the kind of pain, you mm. know, that was absolutely yeah. a choice for me in that moment. And I, I don't feel like, oh, I made the better choice. I just didn't make that choice. Yeah. I just, yeah. I just didn't in that moment do yeah. that. Yeah. But I have a much better and profound understanding of, you know, I don't, I don't know that I ever said this, but I don't say like, oh, I would never do that. I have been really stunned at age 48 to discover all the things I thought I would never do. And that I, that I do, you know, that are part of my life that I think yeah. at the core, we are all human. Yes. And that the notion that, you know, your humanity is wholly different than mine is insane. Completely aligned. Yeah. Megan, thank you. Thank you. This has been a lovely conversation. You're just a, a lovely host. And um, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing in this field. It's so important. Likewise. And um, tell everyone where they can um, find your blog, find yeah, your yes. podcast. Yes. So my podcast is on all the places that you find podcasts and it's grief is my side hustle. And we're in our second season. I'm about to put out a really amazing episode with Hope Edelman of motherless daughters. Who's she and I are working on some projects together that I'm really excited about. Um, and then my website, you can either go as grief is my side hustle and look for it or under my name, Megan Reardon Jarvis, they'll, take you there. The, um, the op-ed is up on the website. Actually, I just am launching a new website right now with all kinds of, um, but my Instagram, which is also Megan Reardon Jarvis with periods in between each name. I'm really active on Instagram. I put a lot of like quick little, you know, educational pieces up there and, you know, cute pictures of my kids and flowers and stuff. Um, but yeah. And if people need to get in touch with me, I'm, I'm very, very responsive, even though my inbox is insane, I have not figured out a way to not respond to all of my emails. So if people need something, they can just contact me through the website. You guys know where to find her. And I believe that we are, I'm just going to put this out there that we're going to have to have another conversation to talk about your memoir as oh, it is coming down the pipe and it's going to be here before we know it. Yes, it yeah. will. It yeah. will. Thank you so yeah. much. That's so yeah. kind. You're so generous. All right, everyone. Let's keep trying to lean into the hard stuff. Let's talk about the hard stuff. We need to remember that grief, loss, trauma is part of being human. We experience it. We need to be aware of it. We need to seek the help that we need for our own lives and also for our kids because we know the healthier and the more engaged we are, the greater the opportunity we give our kids to do the same in their own lives. Thank you all for your listening, for your five-star reviews, for sharing this episode with all that you know will benefit. Do your best to be the person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question, 
What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, follow, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free, plus bonus episodes by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.